Support for Criminal comes from Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. The first contact was a knock on, on the door on a Saturday when I was sitting in my dorm room early afternoon. I, I was doing, you know, I was studying and there was some, some knock on the door, which I knew immediately that had to be a stranger because another student, when they knocked, they would come right in. It was 1970, and Jack Barsky was studying chemistry at the University of Vienna in East Germany. But at the time... His name was Albrecht Dietrich. So I said, come on in, and in came a short um, individual with a cast on his uh, left arm, and uh, he introduced himself as the as a representative of a local optics uh, company, which is actually was one of the few companies in East Germany that made stuff that could sell in the West. It was high, high precision optics. And he then said, you know, I just want to talk with you about your plans after you graduate. And that was like really dumb. He should have known that, that in those days, companies did not recruit. There was no sense in speaking to me. So I immediately figured out he's probably East German secret police. And let's see what's, let's see what's, you know, how he's going to, how this is going to evolve. Jack says that they made some small talk about his plans to be a professor after he graduated. And then, suddenly the man asked if Jack could ever imagine himself working for the government. So we, we had some communication between the lines, and uh, he invited me to, to lunch at the most expensive restaurant in town. And uh, as I enter that restaurant, I see the fellow sitting at a table, and there's another man sitting there. Uh, as I walked slowly towards the, my, my acquaintance, he got up and uh, came to me and he said, let me introduce you to Herman. We are working with our Soviet comrades. And then he excused himself. And so that's how I wound up uh, having a relationship with the KGB. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. says that from then on, he started meeting with Herman all the time. Every Monday at 8.30 a.m., he would call Herman and learn when and where they'd meet. It was always somewhere they wouldn't be noticed. 
Herman's car, or a safe house. And Herman would tell Jack everything he knew about how to be a spy. Eventually, Herman decided Jack was ready to try some small things on his own. So, for instance, to go knock on a door and uh, some house and talk to the resident and find out something about a relative who lived in West Germany. I hated that task, but uh, I did well. I, I got the information. Uh, I pretended to be a sociology student, and uh, I, uh, I w- wanted to ask her if she would participate in a, a sh- short survey. And I had some made-up survey questions, and then sort of I turned this into more of a social talk, and I mentioned some, uh, you know, a relative I had in the West, and before you knew it, oh, you have one too. (laughs) Another time, Jack says he was asked to find out what was inside a commercial building in town. So another little trickery, uh, a ruse, there was a uh, bus station next to that building, and I left a package in that bus and uh, you know on the bench in that bus station overnight and then picked it up made it disappear and then i knocked on the door of that building and asked them did you did you by any chance remove that package what package well you know there was like this important package and i said you know just like there were there were some some writings in there that uh, that i'm i'm preparing for my uh, my thesis for my diploma. And he said, well, well, I can't help you. And and then I managed to, it was lunchtime, I said, you want to go to lunch? And so it became, again, a social event. Jack believes he was being evaluated all this time, evaluated to see if he was trustworthy enough and good enough to take on bigger responsibilities. After about 18 months of training, Herman sent Jack to Berlin. He told him he would meet with a handler there and gave him the time and location and a secret code to use when they met. Each of them carried a sports newspaper in their left hand so they could recognize each other. Jack approached the man and said, Excuse me, I'm looking for Lindenstrasse. The man responded with the correct code. Is that where Helmut lives? and then they were safe to introduce themselves. After that first contact, they met every three days. At one point, the handler, whose codename was Boris, arranged for Jack to cross over from communist East Berlin into West Berlin for a day to, as Jack put it, get my feet wet. Jack remembers that after he got back to East Berlin, Boris asked to meet. And he told me, oh, by the way, I'm, we're going to take you to speak to somebody important. So uh, I, it was this huge building. I didn't know what it was. I found out later on it was the headquarters of the Soviet Army in, in East Germany and uh, the headquarters of the KGB. And he took me to a long, long walkway inside, dimly lit. He took me to an office. And there was this little man sitting behind a huge desk. And this man spoke only Russian. So we had a little conversation back and forth with some translation. I, I, I had enough school Russian to understand most of what he said, and it was a bunch of, a bunch of like small talk about you know the cause of communism and what we we're doing. I didn't need that. So, but I nodded and whatever. And all of a sudden, he changed his his tune and he said, "All right, 
uh, here's the question, are you in or not? And I was not prepared for that. He knew he would have to give up everything he'd worked for, a career as a chemistry professor at his university, his friends, his name. He would have to disappear from his life, and no one, not even his mother, would know where he was. Jack remembers his contact in Berlin, Boris, saying, As far as most people are concerned, you will have vanished into thin air. Wherever you go, you will be in hostile territory. You will have to befriend your enemies and pretend to be one of them. And uh, so, uh, and then, but then there was the lure of going to the West and, uh, you know, being a hero for the communist cause. Uh, at that point, when he asked that question, I just stalled. I said, that, I, I can't give you an answer now because I don't know if I qualify. And secondly, I'm not trained at all. And then he said, well, trust me, you qualify. We determined that. And secondly, we will train you. But we only work with people that can make good decisions very quickly. So I give you until noon tomorrow to give me a yes or no. That uh, made for a sleepless night. And uh, I went back and forth in my mind, back and forth. And I tried to, you know, to make it like weigh, it, weigh the, the two paths on a scale. That didn't work. Eventually, my instinct said, I got to do it. There's a chance of a lifetime. So I told Boris the next day, yeah, count me in. We also had a, um, the, a, a East German version of James Bond. Uh, it was an illegal agent you know, sent from the East German secret police into the West to hunt down Nazis. And he changed his identity and, and he became a different person. And, and uh, he also lived, you know, the good life, you know, the James Bond type of life where, you know, uh, fast cars and uh, nice houses. And that is what I thought uh, the kind of life I would live. You know, I would, you know, have my cake and eat it too, you know, do great things for the communist cause and, and live the, the rich life of the West. He began with more training. There were t- two major elements of the training. Uh, the best training I got from the KGB was what we call tradecraft. All the tools that you need to know and all the the ways that uh, you communicate and how you operate and how you behave, meetings and uh, handing over materials and Morse code and uh, encryption, decryption, secret writing, photography, that that took a lot of time, and that, that uh, was in-person, one-on-one training. Uh, then there was a part of the training that was fundamentally up to me. Uh, I was told to, you know, broaden my knowledge of uh, of culture, of literature, of music, just to become, you know, a a very very well educated, all around educated person who could operate in higher. Uh, strata of society. He went to museums. He took himself to the opera. And he was told he had to learn another language. He picked English and got very good at it. And then the KGB informed him that he would be going to the United States. At the time, the relationship between the communist Soviet Union and the United States was tense. And each country was using its intelligence agency to try and get more information about the other. One way the Soviet Union was trying to get information was by sending secret agents to the United States to set up lives with fake identities. 
Were you excited when you heard that you were going to be going to America? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I wanted to travel the world, and the United States was like, you, it couldn't have been any better. I knew that the United States was our main adversary. We called it ad adversary, but fundamentally, it was close to being an enemy. And uh, for me to like go to the United States, that is like, my God, the most powerful nation in the world, and I would help bring that country down. Can't get any better than that. Because, you know, I was very ambitious. Jack went to Moscow to learn how to blend in in America. He met with a U.S.-born tutor to practice his English, and he worked with a husband and wife named Morris and Lona Cohen. Both Lona and Morris were born in America. When they married in 1941, Lona didn't know that her husband was already a spy for the Soviet Union. But he recruited her, and they quickly started working together. Lona had helped sneak the blueprints for the atomic bomb from a contact at the U.S. lab at Los Alamos to the Soviet Union. She hid them in a tissue box. They came close to being caught in New York in 1950, but were able to eventually make their way to London and start new lives working as booksellers. They were arrested for espionage in 1961. Investigators found a radio transmitter hidden under their refrigerator and tiny photographs of secret documents hidden in the spines of antique books. After eight years in prison, they were sent to the Soviet Union in a prisoner swap. They lived in Moscow, where they were treated like heroes, and where they showed Jack Barsky how to talk and act like an American. For the final step in his training, Jack was sent to Canada as a kind of dress rehearsal for living in the United States. Before he left, a contact from the KGB gave him his first pair of Levi's so he would blend in when he got there. I uh, acquainted myself with the richness of life, uh, materially especially, in North America. He remembers watching television for hours, including sitcoms and Sesame Street. He was fascinated by The Price is Right. He ordered the same breakfast every day, an order that he'd been told was the usual for Americans. Ham and eggs over easy, whole wheat toast, a glass of milk, and a cup of coffee. After he returned from Canada, he was told that the KGB had found an identity for him to use in the United States. He was given an American birth certificate with the name Jack Barsky. So the birth certificate was a, a certified copy of uh, the birth certificate of Jack Barsky, who was born in 1944 and passed away in 1955. In those days, it was uh, possible to acquire the, a birth certificate of anybody, regardless of whether you, you... You didn't have to show that you you had a valid interest in that birth certificate. So there was a, a one of those diplomat agents uh, wandering around one day uh, at a cemetery outside of Baltimore, and he found uh, Jack Barsky's gravestone and acquired that birth certificate. To fill out his American identity as Jack Barsky, he began to practice the made-up story of his past. Places he could have lived, schools he might have attended, a farm in upstate New York where he could have worked for a few years. For more personal stories, 
he used his own memories and focused on switching the names of his German friends for American-sounding names. To explain what remained of his German accent, Jack planned to say that his mother grew up in Germany. We'll be right back. Thanks to Progressive for their support. While you're listening to the show, maybe you're also doing something else. Driving, dishes, folding laundry. I listen when I go on walks. If you're not currently driving a car, you could also be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. Save money right now from your phone. Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year, so you're protected no matter what. You can get a quote for your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over the 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Support for Criminal comes from Factor. After a long day at work, sometimes the most convenient dinner option is ordering takeout. But if you make a habit of it, it can get pricey. Factor offers restaurant-quality, ready-to-eat meals delivered right to your doorstep. Factor's meals are both nutritious and tasty, and you can choose from more than 35 different options weekly. They have a variety of meal types to fit your needs, too, like keto, calorie-smart, vegan, and veggie, and more, with plenty of delicious add-ons also. I've tried Factor meals myself. Lately, I've enjoyed their shredded chicken taco bowl and Thai-roasted vegetable green curry. You can get as much or as little as you need by choosing 6 to 18 meals per week. You can also pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. Head to factormeals.com slash Phoebe50 and use code Phoebe50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code Phoebe50 at factormeals.com slash Phoebe50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. What did you tell your family before you left? Oh, what what I told them, that uh, I I was recruited to work as a chemist uh, in Kazakhstan, where they had a highly secret uh, uh, space uh, research and, and, and rocket launch place that was not accessible to anybody unless they had a permission. And that, uh, that also has no, had no phone lines in and out of the place. So I was fundamentally unable to communicate directly. The only way I could communicate was uh, with letters. He pre-wrote generic letters and postcards that would be periodically sent to his mother during the years he would be away and unable to communicate with her. What did you say in the letters? You know, nonsense. You, you, you know, like stuff that, you know, daily life, you know, small talk and, and writing, you know, I made it up. It was painful to do, but, you know, I, I was ill or I fell. Uh, I had my wisdom tooth pulled. I was talking about some colleagues 
and and on and on and on. Eventually, we we changed our method of operation, and so I rather than handwriting uh, the letters, uh, I I typed them, and so and I left space at the end. So if there was a question to be answered, somebody else could type it in. And at the end, I I left a signature. So a belief in these letters to be real uh, was was uh, encouraged that way. In 1978, Jack left for America. He took a complicated route on planes and trains through Belgrade, Rome, Vienna, and Mexico City, so no one would be able to figure out that he'd come from Moscow. He says he spent a brief time in Chicago, and then he went to New York. I landed at LaGuardia Airport and took a bus into Manhattan, and I was thinking, oh my lord, these, these avenues and streets are so narrow. Fifth Avenue is not narrow. Madison Avenue is no. not narrow. But the the buildings that, that line those roads are so high, it looks like they're squeezing the roadways. In Moscow, the, the big, big roads, in, for instance, in and out of the airport, were lined by four to five-story buildings, and they appeared a lot wider. So that was my first impression. How did you set up a life for yourself? Well, the first year when, when I didn't have documentation, uh, and I, I spent uh, in a uh, rather somewhat sleazy hotel, but y- y- you could blend in because nobody asked you any questions. If you paid with cash, it was no problem. And I also made sure that uh, there was no suspicion by staff. Uh, and I, every morning I left at a certain time and every evening I came back to sort of um, feign that I had a job to go to. So I spent the, the days in, in town. And my first job, like, I couldn't get a really good job because I couldn't take, I, I wasn't able to bring my past with me. So I couldn't just say, go to university and say, you know, I want to be an assistant professor. So I picked a <clears throat> bicycle messenger. So as a bike messenger, my colleagues were all transient workers. You know, they they were in and out of the job and uh, they didn't care to ask questions. So I spent a lot of time in the office when I was waiting for another delivery to be made just listening to them, you know, learning about baseball, learning about what they watch on television, learning about the movies, and watch them, you know, and how they, gestures and everything, and absorbed a lot of things. What were you supposed to be doing? Okay, so there was there was the explicit mission, and there was the implied mission. The implied mission was to just live there and become an American, because there was a uh, there was concern that during the height of the war, that uh, eventually diplomatic relations would be broken up uh, altogether. And then the only ones left, so so to speak, behind enemy lines were us illegals. Spies like Jack were called illegals by the KGB. So the explicit instructions were, well, you know, you need to... You need to become an American and, learn, and get to know as many people as you can and find out if they, first of all, people who are maybe working in government or having an influence on government decisions, and also people that uh, we might want to recruit. In addition to getting to know as many people as possible, Jack was also supposed to be getting his documents squared away. 
a driver's license, a social security card, and ultimately, and most importantly, a U.S. passport. All he had was the birth certificate for Jack Barsky, but he'd been given instructions for how to use it to get started. And uh, the instructions didn't work. Um, you needed to get a driver's license. You needed a birth certificate and a uh, 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 some kind of ID that showed where you lived with name and, name and address. And they told me, just get a, a library card. So I went to the library in, in Brooklyn. I said, uh, I filled out an application and said to the librarian, uh, can I have a library card? She looked at me and says, do you have ID? Uh, oh, um, sorry, I, yeah, I do, but I don't have it with me. I'll come back. Now I'm caught in what they call a catch-22, so you got to have ID to get ID. That was a dead end. I reported this back to Moscow, and they had no idea how I could uh, get out of that quandary. And it took me a lot of research. I went into libraries and looked at all kinds of books, and I read newspaper ads, and I just tried to figure out how to get started with something that looks like an ID that has my name and address on it. And I stumbled upon it. Uh, one day I went to the Museum of Natural History and there was a poster on the wall that says uh, for, and I don't know the amount, for $70 a year you, become, you can become a member. And then there was an exhibit of the membership card. And it was a nice plastic card that had name and address on it. So I paid my $70. And I had a card. And with that, I went to a different library. And that was acceptable to that librarian. And I got my library card. So from that point on, getting a driver's license was just a matter of uh, learning how to drive in New York. <laughs> to get his Social Security card, he said that before coming to New York City, he'd worked on a farm and hadn't needed a Social Security card. To sell the story, he didn't shave for a few days and put dirt under his fingernails before visiting the Social Security office. And it worked. He was approved. But when he tried to apply for a passport, one form he had to fill out included the question, what high school did you attend? Jack realized that they'd be able to figure out pretty easily that his answer was a lie and that that might trigger an investigation. Soon after that, Jack flew back to Moscow for debriefing and planning. He'd been in the United States for two years. One of the first things he did when he arrived was to read all the letters his mother had written him. He also read the letters from a woman he'd been seeing before he left for the United States, Gerlinda. He traveled to East Germany to see her, and they decided to get married. She knew he'd be gone for several more years, but that this wouldn't last forever. Soon after Jack arrived back in the United States, he learned via shortwave transmission from Moscow that Gerlinda was pregnant. He remembers wanting to share the news with someone, but realizing there was no one he could tell. The next year, in 1981, he enrolled in college. The idea was that he might be able to make more valuable contacts with the degree, he studied management and specialized in information systems. He graduated as valedictorian of his class. He got a job as a computer programmer for an insurance company, MetLife. How often were you talking to the KGB? 
in person or talking, when you say talking. How often were you in contact? The contact that I had while in the United States was never in person. Uh, that is misrepresented in uh, in movies and uh, and even in the Americans. There there was a hard uh, requirement that a illegal would never meet another KGB agent in the country where he operated. Too risky. So I got my instructions and answers to questions via Morse code and uh, encrypted uh, messages, short shortwave radio, once a week. How how did it and work? It was always the same time at 9.15 p.m. I would like turn on my radio and dial the frequency. There was a specific frequency. And then listen to a call signal to understand you know, this is really what I have to listen to. And then then I wrote down uh, the, the signals that were delivered. They were all just uh, digits. This Morse code, there was never any letters because it was encrypted. And you don't, uh, encryption with letters is really, really weird. We did encryption and decryption via like, some numeric operations. And that, that took a while. So, you know, it started 9.15. Sometimes it took me until way past midnight to decrypt the entire message. And uh, my communication to the center was primarily through letters with secret writing. And there were only two uh, sheets of paper that I could put in, in each one of the letters. Once in a while, I was asked to send reports about uh, how American citizens react to certain big events in the world. And when I had those things to write, I mean, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, you can't put a lot of, uh, um, uh, of information onto two pieces of paper, particularly because I had to also write them in large block letters, and, you know, I printed it. He had special pads that looked like normal notepads, but the first few pages were covered in a chemical that would transfer onto the page below it when pressed by a pencil. So he would write an innocuous-looking letter on a piece of paper, then slide it under the chemically-treated paper and write his real message on top of that. And then after uh, I was done, I put the letter into an airmail envelope, and then I had to make sure that nobody was following me. And eventually I mailed this, I put this uh, uh, letter in a in one of those public yellow mailboxes that were everywhere. And I mailed it in a, in a spot that was close to the fake return address I put on there. And the fake return address was always a large apartment building. So if it comes back for some reason, people wouldn't just care, they would just throw it away. There were a lot of different ways that Jack made sure he wasn't being followed. So fundamentally, this is the way it worked. It is about a three-hour travel through the city. You go from point to point to point. You walk. You take uh, a train, the subway. You take a streetcar. You might take a taxi. uh, And uh, you could take a bus. And uh, there has to be a reason for you to explain why you were there. Like you go to maybe so to a movie theater and buy a ticket, and you go and spend some time in a museum. Uh, that was one of my favorite spots to walk around in a museum or in a department store, because in those places 
you can walk around and you can turn around and change direction and you see and look at the faces that of the people that might be following you. Normally, you know, turning while you're walking in the streets, that was a no-no. That was absolutely not allowed. So, and, you know, and when, you, when you're at a bus stop, you know, see who else is standing there. Jack says that if you're being followed, it could be by a team of seven or eight people, and at least one of them would have to be very close. They have to see what you're doing, because the reason that they follow you is to, to see, you know, what you're up to. If, you, if you're meeting somebody, or you, you're handing something over to somebody, or you send, or you put a signal on a wall or some stuff like that. Anything that would indicate that you are up to no good. And so, uh, when after three hours, I always knew that I was being followed. And when I didn't know, and you can't prove a negative, but when, when I didn't know when I was being followed, I, I reported back, I'm not, I, I saw no signs of being followed. And I was always right. And the reason that I, I, I was so successful was my ability to, I had a really, really good memory for faces. And the bottom line is if you see within three hours, you see that very same face twice, you know that this person is coming they are after you. Jack says that when he had to pick up or pass along actual objects, like fake passports to travel back to Moscow, or cash when he needed it, he'd use something called a dead drop. So what you do, first of all, uh, there's two people involved, but they never meet. There's a spot where the spot is known to both people. This is a spot uh, that uh, is easily found such as um, a fallen tree someplace in a park uh, that uh, is a certain number of steps from the entrance to the park. And uh, so, and then there's a time when the operation takes place. Uh, our time was always 3.25 p.m. And uh, then there's two other spots where the signals are placed. So now, the object to be transmitted is put in a container. The KGB agents always used uh, crushed old oil cans. Uh, when I had some something to transmit in a dead drop operation, I made rocks out of plaster of Paris. So anyway, so the operation starts with, let's say I'm, I'm putting the rock in, in, in the spot uh, to be extracted. I drop the rock and then I get to the spot where I put the signal says, uh, indicates to the second person, go and get it. It's there. If that sign is not there, the person aborts the, the it doesn't even go to the spot. And I'm hanging out in that neighborhood for a while and then I go to the spot where he indicates that he has taken the container. And uh, if that sign is not there, I have to go back and retrieve the container and take it with me. So communication was really awkward. And uh, the only time I had face-to-face -face communication was every two years. Uh, I went uh, back to Moscow for debriefing and some, some retraining. Uh, a couple of times I, they changed the algorithm for decryption on me. And uh, some re rest and relaxation, that's when I had, you know, direct interaction and when I was back at home I felt like the old German again and 
I would instinctively respond to my German name, and there was just no difference. And then when I came back to the United States, uh, I was uh, Jack Barsky again. He started seeing a woman named Penelope. One day, she confided in me. She said, you know, I'm actually illegal in this country. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I I really felt for her. She'd immigrated illegally from Guyana and needed a way to stay in the country. Jack thought they could get married. And I did some research, and I found out that shouldn't be a problem because I, I had good American identification. I had the ID and I had, my, <clears throat> I had a job. I was a professional at that time. I was already a programmer. And, uh, you, you know, I had what it takes. So I said, you know what? I'll help you. They rehearsed what they'd say during their interview with immigration, what they did in their spare time together, what their shared home looked like. None of that was necessary because when she showed up, she was already pregnant, and the lady that was going to interview us said, yeah, you qualify. (laughs) Jack kept his work with the KGB a secret from Penelope. They had a daughter they named Chelsea, he says that when she smiled at him, he felt something he'd never felt before. He didn't tell the KGB anything about his American family and went on as normal, decoding messages at night and going to work every day. And then, one morning on the way to work, he saw something he hadn't seen before. It was uh, on a supporting beam for the... Uh... A train, there was a subway that went above ground where I uh, took the train, a fist-sized red dot. And that was the danger signal. That was the uh, indicated that I was in severe danger and that was to uh, meant to initiate the emergency procedure which fundamentally says get out of the country as quickly as you can, go, go across the Niagara Falls Bridge into Canada, go to the, the uh, embassy, the Soviet embassy, and uh, we will get you out of, out of Canada. Jack says he tried to ignore the signal. He didn't want to leave. And then, a week later, someone came near him on the subway platform and whispered, you must come home or else you are dead. He had to make a decision. His daughter, Chelsea, was 18 months old. I had to leave, and yet I didn't. I couldn't. I, I chose Chelsea. I chose her. I threw caution into the winds and, and told the KGB uh, that in my last letter with secret writing, I communicated that I'm not coming home. And the question always comes right after this when I tell people that. Uh, how do you how do you tell the KGB that you you're not coming? You know, how do you resign from the KGB? And uh, the, I came up with a really really good lie. I told them that uh, I was deathly ill with HIV/AIDS, and in those days it was in 1988. HIV/AIDS there was no cure for it. It was a death sentence, and they had no reason to not believe that they they had they didn't know that I had a child in this country so uh they believed it they told my german family that 
that I was dead. And uh, in, in Germany, the 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 files that are whatever the social registry uh, show uh, the, the German name that, that I operated under for 26 years died in, in 1988. Jack says that he started taking different routes to work and that he got rid of everything that could give him away as a spy. His encryption pad, his secret writing paper, his shortwave radio. After about three months of always looking over his shoulder, he says it didn't seem like the KGB or the FBI were following him. I I knew I was I was in the clear. I could live out the rest of my life sort of in the shadows as an illegal, but uh, you know nobody would would come after me. Nobody would know about me. So uh, after those three months, I told my wife uh, Penelope. I told her, you know what? It's time that we, you know, work on our the American dream, save some money, we're going to buy a house. And within a year, we moved into the suburbs. And then I said, let's have another child. And uh, three years after Chelsea was born, her brother was born. He'd been working at the same company as his cover for almost six years. Over the years, he got promoted, and he and his family moved into a new house in Mount Bethel, Pennsylvania. And uh, I commuted from... uh, New Jersey, where my job was, into that uh, little town, and I had to cross the Delaware River. There was a toll bridge, and it was on a Friday afternoon. And uh, I'm, you know, I'm ready to get home and uh, enjoy the weekends and play with my kids. And there was a traffic stop, and there was a a, a state trooper. In, in uniform, he waved me over, and I rolled down the window, and he said, uh, you know, state police, uh, it's a routine traffic stop. Could you please step out of the car? Right then and there, I should have known that was not routine, but I just didn't think about this. I step out of the car, and I see this another person, a civilian, coming at me from my right. And uh, he flipped open and something like nowadays we, I don't know what it's called let me flip open a cell phone he flipped something open that you know was an ID and I didn't have to look at it I knew what it was but he said you know FBI we would like to talk to you we'll be right back Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latinx culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. 
from conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping and get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. How did you first hear the name Jack Barsky? Uh, it first came to my attention in the early 1990s, uh, approximately 1992. I received a communication from my headquarters in Washington that uh, an investigation had been initiated looking for someone in the United States using the name Jack Philip Barsky and that he was an undercover agent secreted into the United States by the KGB. Former FBI agent Joe Riley. I worked counterintelligence for, uh, oh, a good 20, 25 years before I got this case, and it was like hitting the lottery for me. Uh, most of the cases we have uh, don't uh, come up to this level of importance we were very anxious to know what he was up to in this country. Was he running uh, a spy ring here? The FBI had first gotten the name Jack Barsky from a former KGB archivist named Vasily Matrokin. Vasily Matrokin claimed that while he was working in the KGB's archives, he began copying secret documents by hand. He smuggled them home in his shoes for years and buried them in milk containers under his floorboards. After the dissolution of the Soviet Union, he went to a British embassy and told them what he had. The documents revealed assassinations, sabotage targets in the U.S., even plans to break a ballet dancer's legs. And they also mentioned Jack Barsky. Joe Riley says it wasn't hard to figure out which of the few Jack Barskys living in the United States was probably a spy. When we started doing his background investigation, we found out that this Jack Barsky was, uh, uh, he really didn't have a background. Uh, he had given information to his employer that he had lived in New York State and worked on a farm and we found from our investigation that that was false. There was no such farm, and he had never worked there. So we knew we had the right uh, person. What did you do next? What was your first step? Well, we put him under surveillance. Why didn't you just arrest him right away? We wanted to find out uh, if he had any contacts here in this country before we arrested him, because we weren't sure that he would cooperate. So we wanted to follow him for a while and find out what he was up to and then arrest him. What, what did the surveillance entail? Uh, well, <laughs> we followed him to and from work. We followed him on weekends. And also, I conducted my own surveillance. I... Uh, I set up a table on a country road three or 400 yards 
behind his house. There was an open field there, and uh, I had a clear view from that road to the back of his house. And I set up a table there with books on ornithology and simply pretended that I was a bird watcher. And I sat there with binoculars and a telescope, and uh, I was able to watch him on weekends and holidays as he worked in his backyard and uh, did yard work and uh, played with his children. Uh, they had an above-ground pool in the backyard. So I, I got... I was surprised at how much I learned just watching him. I came to see that he loved his children and played with them in the pool. They helped him uh, when he was planting trees in his backyard. He just seemed very close to them, and I didn't think he was going to give that up. It's amazing what you can pick up just watching people. Did anyone ever did anyone ever question you about why you were watching so many birds or, or what birds <laughs> you were seeing? No, no one did. When the house next to Jack's went up for sale, the FBI bought it, and agents took turns living there and watching Jack's movements. They also searched his car at one point. Joe says they didn't really find anything. But he did notice that Jack had a lot of classical music cassette tapes. Joe, like classical music, too. While Jack and his family were away one weekend, the FBI went into their house and hid microphones in the kitchen and family room so they could listen in on Jack's conversations with his wife. Was it boring listening? I mean, I imagine that I can think about if someone put a microphone in my kitchen, I would get bored listening to me. Yes, uh, most of it was, but fortunately... Early on, I think within the first week or two that we placed the microphones in the kitchen, we got the conversation that was critical. It really was an argument. He clearly told her that he was here undercover for a foreign intelligence service and that he had left the service a year or two before and uh, was no longer operating for them. So this was you were hearing for the first time him telling his wife, I'm a spy. Yes. And that what was critically important to us, that he was no longer actively spying. So it made no sense for us to continue surveilling him. So we finally got authorization to arrest him. Tell me about the arrest. Myself and another agent approached the car And we told uh, Jack to get out of the car that we were with the FBI. And he looked up at me and he said, what took you so long? Which was surprised us, that he would have enough of a sense of humor in this situation to ask us what took us so long. We rented uh, several rooms in the motel for security reasons, and we took Jack to one of the rooms that we had set up, and we began initially questioning him. He asked me every possible little thing that I could remember about my life, childhood, upbringing, school, training, on and on, and what it was like to operate as an agent. 
Jack Barsky told them everything he knew. He wasn't arrested and got to continue to live at home with his family. FBI agent Joe Riley continued meeting and talking with Jack for months. He was very honest. Uh, he, there was just something about him, and we shared certain things in, of uh, interest. Uh, one was, of course, classical music, but also uh, Jack was interested in sports. Uh, he, he was trying to, he did teach his daughter how to play basketball in the uh, driveway of their home. And he invited me to, to join his uh, weekly golf outing. He and I would, while I was debriefing him, we'd go out on the golf course and uh, we'd play golf. And then afterwards, we'd have a beer and, and talk about uh, different uh, aspects of his uh, career as an agent. Jack Barsky and Joe Riley continued to talk, even after their official communications had ended. And they're still friends today. Are you in touch with anyone else you investigated? No. <laughs> I believe he's the only one. Who's the better golfer? I am. <laughs> Definitive. <laughs> Jack was not a great golfer, but he loved it. The FBI worked with Jack to help him become an official U.S. citizen. Joe says it was complicated because Jack already had a Social Security number, but it was under a false name. Today, he finally has a real U.S. passport after decades of trying. And I, I succeeded in what the KGB wanted me to do, become an American. When his daughter turned 18, he told her about the earlier part of his life, when he'd worked for the KGB. He told her younger brother when he turned 18, too. In 2014, after he'd received his passport, he planned a trip to Germany. He hadn't been home in almost 30 years. He learned that his mother had died. The woman he'd married 34 years earlier, Gerlinda, didn't want to see him. But the child they'd had together, who is now an adult, agreed to meet. They now have a relationship. What has it been like to not have a secret anymore? I mean, to live in the open. <laughs> I, I have some still. <laughs> I used to hide cookies because I was afraid to admit to to my family that I, I had an addiction to cookies. I also, uh, when I, I, I quit smoking, but then occasionally I would still smoke a cigarette, but I would do that in secret. <laughs> so you know, there's something that that you just feel like you don't want to share with everybody, but it's this is not nothing like big, and it's not it is not damaging to anybody else. Okay, let's put it this way. You're probably better at keeping secrets than most of us. Oh yeah, you know <laughs> I I can still tell tell a lie with uh, you won't read you you cannot read anything in my face, but I I have never felt better being me than I do now. It was a long detour. But I'm glad, I'm glad I arrived where I'm going to be for the rest of my existence on this earth. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking all this time to talk, um, to talk with us. I'm, I was so glad to get to speak with you, and thank you for making your way into the studio. Yeah, you're, you're welcome. And uh, question, uh, uh, you're an American, right? 
Yep. Mm-hmm. Where from? Do you think I might be a spy? <laughs> you could be. Oh, now that's the best compliment I've ever received. Are we still recording? Do we have that? Criminal is created by Lauren Spohr and me. Nadia Wilson is our senior producer. Katie Bishop is our supervising producer. Our producers are Susanna Robertson, Jackie Sajiko, Lily Clark, Lena Sillison, Sam Kim, and Megan Kinane. This episode was mixed by Veronica Simonetti. Engineering by Russ Henry. Julian Alexander makes original illustrations for each episode of Criminal. You can see them at thisiscriminal.com. And you can sign up for our newsletter at thisiscriminal.com slash newsletter. Jack Barsky wrote a book about his life. It's called Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Tangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America. We hope you'll join our new membership program, Criminal Plus. Once you sign up, you can listen to criminal episodes without any ads and get bonus episodes each month. To learn more, go to thisiscriminal.com slash plus. We're on Facebook and Twitter at Criminal Show and Instagram at Criminal underscore podcast. We're also on YouTube at youtube.com slash criminal podcast. Criminal is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Discover more great shows at podcast.voxmedia.com. I'm Phoebe Judge. This is Criminal. Thanks to Progressive for their support. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who switch to Progressive save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.